Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Ginny Smith. Hello, and this week, how pharmaceutical companies can use what people are looking for online to discover drug side effects. A new longer-term look at the climate suggests things are suddenly warming up. And a new flame-retardant material made from DNA. Plus, we're getting our teeth into the topic of food security this week. How long before there are too many mouths to feed and what can we do about it? We'll also hear how flies might be able to help. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientists, email chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And joining us this week for a look at the science news headlines is science journalist Mark Peplow, the deputy news editor at Science magazine Dan Cleary, and Phil Robinson from Chemistry World. So hello to all of you. Mark, if uh, we could come to you first, can you uh, tell us about this uh, drug discovery story? What's all this about? Yeah, so researchers at Microsoft, as well as at Stanford and Columbia universities in the US, have developed software that control web searches to find evidence of prescription drug side effects. What they did, they looked at a sample of 82 million different web searches from back in 2010. And they looked for two particular drug names, an antidepressant called paroxetine and a cholesterol-lowering drug called provastatin. And they also looked for um, phrases associated with a side effect, high blood sugar. Now, that's a side effect that's already known uh, to be produced when the two interact. It's a rare side effect. And what they found is that people who searched for both drugs were twice as likely to also search for symptoms like high blood sugar, like blurry vision, and and a range of 80 other side effects that are associated with it. And in fact, 30% of those people did the searches all on the same day. Now, what they're drawing from that is that analysing web searches for sort of combinations of drugs and side effects all being searched for by the same people at the same time could give drug regulators a tip-off about any unknown side effects out there. Doesn't uh, Google already do something similar for the flu? Because I I heard a report where uh, an epidemiologist said to me from the University of Oslo, Google knows when the flu's coming before the WHO. Yeah, um, this sort of data mining, as it's known, is not not really a new idea. idea. Google flu trends has been tracking people's searches for flu-related terms since 2008. And, And on the whole, it's been pretty successful in predicting outbreaks of flu actually faster than the US Centers for Disease Control. Um, Twitter's been used in the same way, actually. Um, Researchers used Twitter data back in 2010 to track the cholera outbreak in Haiti. 
they also used it to, to track what mood the world was in at any given time of day. Right. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it showed that people were, funnily enough, at a better, in a better mood at weekends. And there was a little surge in, Funny that, in, in positive sentiment around bedtime. But perhaps we won't yeah. go into, into why that is. But going back to what the, the drug companies are up to then and the regulators, how do they get the noise away from this? Because there must be lots of people typing in loads of things that are not relevant to that agent. So how do they get around that? It can be tricky, actually. And this winter was a really good example of that. Google flu trends massively overestimated peak flu levels in the US this winter. And experts think it may be because there was so much media coverage of this severe flu season. So people who didn't have the flu were still searching uh, frantically for information about it. So really, the next goal for researchers is to try and refine models to weed out this sort of excess signal. And they also have to prove, really, that the systems are reliable and timely enough to translate surveillance into healthcare action. Because at the moment, mostly this has been confined to sort of retrospective studies of health effects, epidemics and so on that we already know about. And they've gone back and proven that you could have seen this coming if you'd looked at the data at the time. Is it not slightly slamming the door after the horse has bolted, though, doing it this way around? Are these not things that we should be picking up before an agent gets licensed? Uh, well, I mean, drug side effects, are, given how many drugs there are on the market, um, uh, clinical trials at the moment certainly don't uh, sort of cross-check uh, taking one drug and another at the same time with every possible combination of every drug. Uh, agencies like the US uh, Food and Drug Administration rely on something called the Adverse Events Reporting System, which is where patients and doctors actually say, look, um, we're seeing some adverse effects when we use these two things in combination. And that's when they act on it. And um, the issue with these sort of uh, data mining studies is that you could get an early tip off to that sort of stuff. How do you know that these are effects that people are actually experiencing and not just say they've heard of someone who had that and they're going to Google it to see whether there's a chance they'll get it? Well, that's possible. Um, the researchers think that the signal that they saw um, in the data was just too too big to be coincidence. Uh, like I said, the, you know, people who ser searched for both drug names and the symptoms as well, um, all on the same day, uh, there were so many of those, twice as likely to come in those combinations as not. Um, it, it, it seemed too much of a coincidence to be, uh, to be anything else. So we can also use... Uh cure for hangover as a good way to predict when, when uh, to start upping our output of painkillers, perhaps. I don't know. Dan, tell us about another major headache, which is uh, climate change. What is, what's been appearing this week in this domain? Well, this is a, a new study <clears throat> which is looking at uh, studying climate change through global um, average temperature. So for the last 150 years, people have had thermometers. They could just measure it and there have been reliable records. But to see whether the rise we're seeing now is unusual and unnatural, uh, they wanted to look further back and so they had to find proxies for temperature. So they looked at things like the width of tree rings and the growth of coral and ice cores and things like that and were able to reconstruct the temperature back for a thousand years. But a thousand and years, obviously that's a blink of an eye, isn't it, in, it in is both geological time and, and also more recent time really given the age of the earth indeed but they found they saw this famous hockey stick graph where there was a long slow decline in temperature and then it suddenly went up so this group of researchers in um, in america at oregon state and harvard published in science this week 
they ask the question, what about a longer time phase than uh, a thousand years? So they looked at sediments in this ocean and doing cores in the sediment, they could find micro fossils. And by looking at the chemical composition and the isotopes in these fossils, they could reconstruct the temperature going back all the way to the last ice age, 11,000 years ago. And, uh, they found the same thing. You know, the temperature went up slightly after the Ice Age, and then there was a long, long And that was long, when? Slow. When was that? What, 10,000 years ago or so? Yeah, 11,000 years ago. So for, it went up for a couple of thousand years, and then it went on a plateau for about 4,000 years, and then this long, slow decline. So the hockey stick handle is extremely long, they found. <clears throat> and it went down gradually by about point seven degrees over that whole 5,000 year period and then suddenly 200 years ago it just turned the corner and went up by the same amount by 0.7 degrees in uh, basically 100 years. So, so a very small amount of time relatively speaking. Exactly. Have, have we seen though this sort of abrupt change on this sort of magnitude previously or is this a sign that because it happens to be coincident with a very significant change in say CO2 that it seems to be that this really is anthropogenic. It's not just a natural cycle. That was their conclusion. They hadn't seen any such abrupt change in that whole uh, record of 11,000 years. You know, there were gradual changes, which they attribute to changes in the uh, sun, you know, the insulation of the sun, and some CO2 effect, but nothing like this sudden jump in uh, a century or two. Mark? Like you said, we've only got uh, thermometer records for you know, 100, 200 years, something like that. So we have to rely on these proxies like tree rings and uh, here uh, microfossils and isotopes in sediments uh, to try and reconstruct the past temperature. Tree rings have been quite controversial as a proxy as to how reliable they are really as a measure of temperature. Is there going to be controversy about these isotope measurements and how reliable they are um, about reconstructing temperature? There's bound to be some. What this particular team did is they wanted to get a real global average so they took core data from 73 sites around the globe so that it, it was really geographically distributed and they hope would get a better, you know, more reliable, geo, you know, average temperature for the whole Earth. Thank you, Dan. And uh, thank you, Mark, too. Now, also this week, we've had the tragic story of that uh, guy in Florida, Jeff Bush, who was killed when a so-called 60-foot-wide sinkhole suddenly opened up underneath his bedroom and he unfortunately fell into it. And so we wanted to find out a bit more about what these natural phenomena are. So Nigel Woodcock, who's from the Faculty of Earth Sciences at Cambridge University, has kindly come in to open this box for us. But what actually is a sinkhole, Nigel? Sinkholes, uh, any substance of the ground surface where... Uh, usually circular plan on the Earth's surface, and uh, usually much deeper than they are uh, than they are wide. Uh, but they they f form by a, a, a number of mechanisms. Uh, usually, though, they're due to uh, soluble rocks underneath the ground, limestones or rock salt. These sorts of things, which are easily dissolved, especially by acidic groundwater. And uh, caverns form underground, and then unpredictably, uh, these things can can fall in uh, overnight, as as tragically happened in uh, in Florida. Is it limestones chiefly then that go? It's limestones and uh, what we call evaporites, which are the minerals which develop from uh, from evaporating seawater. So mostly rock salt or gypsum, 
and all these all these are very susceptible to to solution are they also everywhere because this happened in florida but could it happen anywhere no it couldn't uh, the estimate is that in the united states uh, about 20% of the continental area of the united states is susceptible it's underlain by these sorts of rocks. In Britain, uh, maybe a little bit less, 15%. Uh, Australia, about 15%. So if you're, the good news is if you're in the other uh, 80 85% of, uh, of those countries, then you're perfectly safe. But equally, if you're not, you could be unsafe. How did they manage to miss something as huge as that sitting under a house? It's a little bit like uh, geologists uh, having the job of predicting earthquakes. We can define the general zones where, which are most at risk, but saying exactly where and exactly when these collapses are going to happen is extremely difficult, uh, uh, almost, almost impossible. And you, rel- uh, you rely on local observations. Usually they don't happen overnight. In this case, they seem to have done. Uh, but there are usually warning signs and... Uh, the, the, the local information is, is critical in predicting uh, these larger uh, substance episodes. Dan? Uh, do they go very deep? I know it's a simple question, but I understand they never found the man who fell into the hole in Florida. They go frighteningly deep. Uh, I, I gather the deepest, the deepest sinkholes known in China are something like 600 metres deep. And uh, this one was said to be much less than that but uh, still deep enough to, to uh, um, obviously uh, cause, cause a lot of damage if, if houses collapse into them. What do you do once one of these has opened up? Because I hear that they can be sort of caverns that are connected to other ones. Can you fill them in? This is the problem. Uh, engineers in these areas which are susceptible uh, try and fill them with concrete sometimes, but they're, 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 the volume is, is many, si- many, many times. You imagine 600 metres deep, that's a lot it of concrete, isn't it? Concrete. It's a lot of ready mix, isn't and, it? And <laughs> uh, as you say, they're often intercon- these fissures are often interconnected in unpredictable ways, so the concrete just disappears down into much lower levels of the earth. So it's not, it's not usually the best plan. So what does this mean for the other people in that street? Um, can we do surveys now and have a look and say, right, we know there's a hot spot here. Can we do ground penetrating radar or something it and see where these things are? It would be possible to do that sort of geophysical survey and uh, define where the fissures are. But even then, uh, one fissure of a particular width could be stable and one may, another one next door may not be. So there's a lot of uh, random chance involved here. Nigel, thank you very much. The Nigel Woodcock from the University of Cambridge. Phil, tell us about... Uh, DNA as a new form of flame retardant clothing sounds exciting. How does right, exactly. this work? Well, in recent recent weeks, we've we've seen DNA uh, exploding out of our cells and being used for data storage and all manner of other things. Well, now now people are using it as a, as a flame retardant. So we can of, ditch of the things. asbestos Bunsen burner mat. Exactly. DNA instead. You need, you need nothing more than the, the DNA that's uh, that's in your own cells. So who's done this and what is it? So the work has been carried out by a chap called uh, Giulio Malicelli. Uh, he's at the uh, Polytechnic University of Turin. That's uh, that's in Italy, Chris. And Thank you for that <laughs> impromptu uh, geography lesson. Thank you. Do I look that uncultured? You're, I don't you're, know. You're very welcome. Um, and 
and, and so he's he's been trying to find um, a, a more environmentally friendly flame retardant. So flame retardants, it's nothing new there. They've been around for a long time. Very useful materials, of course, but they're not quite as benign as we might like them to be. Um, some of the most common ones are, uh, are halogenated polymers. Um, the the very first of these uh, would be polychlorinated by phenols, PCBs, um, which were banned back in the 70s. Pretty nasty things. Um, since then, uh, brominated alternatives, another halogen there, bromine, brominated alternatives are uh, are very commonly used. But again, they're, they're not ideal. They are toxic and they do accumulate um, in humans. So ideally, we want uh, a flame retardant material that is uh, is environmentally friendly. And, and DNA is certainly environmentally friendly, but why use it as a flame retardant? Well, it has several properties that make it uh, very good as, as a flame retardant. Um, so it's got a lot of carbon in it, and carbon's very useful because when, when that uh, burns, you, you get a char. It effectively, it forms a thermal shield that separates the, the heat source from the material underneath. Um, it also contains um, acid, the phosphate groups in there, you get phosphoric acid um, from DNA. And that will, um, in the case of textiles, that will dehydrate the cellulose and giving you more carbon. So you increase that, that char layer. Now um, I can see why this might be really useful if I'm a nano-sized person yes. and I want to make a DNA fireproof coat for a nano person. But you know, what about you know, me in a lab coat? How can I possibly make enough DNA to be useful? So that's probably one of the biggest downsides to this is the Mind amount of DNA <laughs> that you would need is huge. So the researchers here have, uh, well, when you hear where it comes from as well, um, they uh, they used herring sperm uh, for their that's a lot of herrings their isn't it? their DNA. So uh, there's a lot of happy herrings uh, in that lab. Um, they um, they use herring sperm DNA, but of course you need a huge volume. So they they haven't coated a, a lab coat or anything practical really they just use some strands of cotton um, and so the expense that would be involved in getting enough DNA together to really make a, a, a practical um, a volume would be uh, is prohibitive. Well if there's any sperm banks that are sort of worrying about samples going off they could always sort of dip <laughs> into those uh, what about um, actual practical use I mean is this going to be realisable soon do you think or, or is this just so pie in the sky we, we can use the chemistry of DNA and maybe come up with something synthetic that's as good but but cheaper and more practical yeah i think the expense involved in getting enough dna is is going to make it difficult and also fixing the dna to the material is another challenge that has not been solved as soon as you wash that it's gone keep my mind on those herring Ginny, tell us about uh, anorexia well, this is a fascinating study that suggests that deep brain stimulation might be a last resort treatment for sufferers of anorexia. So anorexia nervosa is a really serious mental condition. In fact, it's got the highest mortality rates of all of the psychiatric disorders. Um, up to 11% of sufferers die. And the treatments we have at the moment, which mainly focus on getting their weight back up and then counselling, psychotherapy, things like that, they're just not effective for a percentage of these people. So this new approach, which is being pioneered at the University of Toronto, um, it was published this week in The Lancet, and it uses electrical stimulation of the brain to treat this condition. So deep brain stimulation has been used in various things from Parkinson's to depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, all these different illnesses because it seems to alter something in the brain and you can control these areas that are perhaps different in those those illnesses. They physically do put an electrode 
inside the brain and then drive it electrically, don't they? Yes, they do. So um, they implanted the electrodes in this study in a region that's sort of buried deep inside your brain, kind of behind your eyes, which is called the subcolossal cingulate. And it's been linked to mood control. And they then implant a pulse generator under their collarbones and this can allow the stimulation to be turned on and off. So um, a lot of anorexia sufferers also have things like depression and OCD. So that's why they tried, decided to try it in this particular area that has been shown to help people with depression. And they found that although immediately following the surgery, all of the patients, they did this on six people, it was just kind of proof of concept, they all lost weight immediately after the surgery. But nine months later, three of them weighed more than they had before surgery. And in fact, for these three, it was their longest period of sustained weight increase since they first became ill. So these were patients who'd been ill for on average 18 years. And none of the treatments they'd had have helped. But after nine months of this deep brain stimulation, for those three at least, it seemed to have really helped. And two of the other three, although they didn't gain weight, had improved mood or some relief from their OCD symptoms. Which, of course, might mean they respond better to other therapies if they're in a better or more motivated mood. Do they know how it works? Do they have any idea why stimulating that particular brain area makes these people get better, at least in, in half of the cases? Well, they know the brain regions that seem to be affected because if you stimulate one region, other regions nearby and even some that are quite far away in the brain can also be affected. Um, and there's an adjacent brain region called the insula, which is known to be involved in both fear and anxiety mechanisms and also in taste, quite different things, but both of which may have play a part in um, anorexia. So the fact that it affects this area may be part of it. It also, um, the stimulation also seems to affect the parietal lobe, which is involved in body and weight distortion. So thinking you're fatter than you are. So there are various mechanisms that might be how it works. I guess now just a bigger trial to work out whether or not uh, this might be more comprehensively and generally used. Yeah, definitely. This has proved that it's, it's a good idea that's worth pursuing. Thank you very much, Ginny. And thank you also to Dan Cleary, who's the Deputy News Editor at Science Magazine, to Nigel Woodcock from Cambridge University, who told us all about sinkholes. I was going to say filled us in on sinkholes, but that might be a bad choice of words. Mark Peplow, who's a freelance science journalist, and Phil Robinson, who is from Chemistry World, from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Thank you to all of you. There's more information and the references to all of the stories we've covered this week on our website. You go to nakedscientist.com slash news. This is The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and with me, Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments, you can always do that by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on our Facebook page. Now, for most professional rugby or American football players, repeated knocks to the head are considered an occupational hazard. But over the course of a career, they can result in long-term damage. Now scientists have developed a new theory that means that there might be more we can do to protect players beyond fitting them with a helmet. To find out more, we're joined by Dr Geoffrey Bazarian from the University of Rochester Medical Centre. Hello, Geoffrey. Hi. Tell us, first of all, what did we used to think happened when people were subjected to repeated blows to the head? Well, we've only begun to actually see a connection between these repeated blows and something bad happening. People kind of think if there's something bad happening, it involves stretching these, the long spaghetti-like cells in the brain, the neurons, so in causing axonal damage. You're just doing that repeatedly at a low level over and over and over again. And so the 
thinking has been that the damage kind of builds up at time, some critical, some critical threshold is reached, and, and you get dementia later in life. So it's just because if you keep on shaking the head too hard, you're, you're going to sever nerve cell axons, these connections, and eventually you're going to lose cells, lose connections, and this will have a, a, a cognitive decrement. That's exactly right. So what are you saying is different? Well, it looks like the problem might be not so much with injuring the brain cells, but injuring the gate between the brain and the blood. This barrier is called the blood-brain barrier. The brain is kind of a funny organ. It's walled off from the rest of the body by this barrier, and it's normally closed. And uh, our study suggests that these blows to the head that we don't think about being bad repeatedly open up that barrier and allow proteins to kind of bathe the brain to get out into the peripheral circulation, which doesn't sound so bad. But the main discovery here is we found antibodies. The body actually makes antibodies to those proteins. So the next time that gate opens up, that antibody's looking for a target. It's like a heat-seeking missile looking for a target. And where does it go? It goes back to the cell that made the protein to begin with, back into the brain across this breached blood-brain barrier. And we speculate that may be part of the the process of this long-term neurodegeneration. What evidence have you got that, A, the blood-brain barrier is opening up in that way when there is head trauma or repeated trauma, and B, that those antibodies are then actually going across the blood-brain barrier later and doing damage? Excellent questions. So the first one was, the first question you posed was actually more easy to demonstrate. Um, and the, using this this. Uh, a blood test called S100B. This is a protein that's made by astrocytes in the brain. It's not found anywhere else. So the blood-brain barrier's got to be open for this stuff to show in the serum. So we can't actually visualize the blood-brain barrier in someone who's alive. You can only do it post-mortem. So this is a kind of a surrogate measure of blood-brain barrier patency. And if you see this protein above a certain level, the blood-brain barrier is open. And we kind of established some of those thresholds in prior studies. So that part was easy. Showing antibodies to the protein, that was easy. Your second question, that was much harder to prove, right? We can't actually see these antibodies on living brain tissue. There's no way to kind of uh, image that in someone who's alive. If they were willing, we could uh, take a piece of their brain out and look at it under the microscope, but most folks who play football aren't really interested in doing that. So we have to do some work with animals. We took the blood from some of these athletes that have the antibodies poured it over, over mouse brain and saw that it's stuck to the cells that we thought expressed this. It's a leap to kind of say, well, it's probably happening in the human brain, but we saw it in the animal. So it makes the connection a little easier to make, but by no means causative. What is it going to take to prove this now that you have this intellectual leap and you've got some evidence that certainly the antibodies are being made and can we stop it? Right. Uh, I think that's where we probably have to turn to an animal model. You know, how you establish causality in these cases is you do the typical things. You try to block the antibody response, see if the brain injury is prevented. You try to stimulate the antibody response, see if you get more, more brain injury. You sacrifice the animal, look to see if the antibody is sticking to the, to the cells um, in, a more, in a more direct way. In humans, it's going to be very difficult to prove that link unless somebody can come up with a kind of a non-invasive way to image these antibody complexes on the brain. What about professional footballers? Are we going to see them being told, whatever you do, don't head the ball in future because it could get brain damage? That's a little different question, and I think there's a lot of people, myself included, trying to tighten that connection, trying to show that 
whatever happens acutely with these subconcussive head blows, that they somehow are directly linked to, to neurodegeneration 10 or 15 years later. That's kind of difficult to do because of the time involved. But I think we need to connect a few more of those dots before we start telling footballers to not hit 70, 80 times a game. But how hard do you think you have to hit your head in order to get this effect? Or is it really rather trivial head trauma that will do this? Well, that that's an excellent question. And that's exactly the kind of things that need to be established. And, you know, luckily uh, with the invention of, of sensors, accelerometers for helmets, for football players, we can start to answer what, you know, what exactly, what, what threshold needs to be reached before we start to see some either either an abnormal immune response or some microscopic brain injury. So that work is being done. It's harder to do in rugby players or in soccer players because we can't really measure the, the, the forces to their head without them wearing some kind of sensors uh, on their head. They don't wear helmets, so that makes it harder to do. But there's many people that are on, hot on the trail of this question. Jeffrey, thank you. We'll have to leave it there. I'm just donning my helmet to protect my head now. That's Dr. Jeffrey Bazarin from the University of Rochester Medical Centre. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and with me, Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments, email chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or find us on Facebook. When most of the Earth is covered in water, it's not surprising that our oceans continue to surprise us. But when thinking about our ocean's inhabitants, polychaetes, or bristle worms, are probably not the first species that springs to mind. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson joined Letitia Dunton at the Natural History Museum in London to look at some of the smallest specimens under a microscope. These worms are from the Wittard Canyon, which is an underwater canyon in the northeast Atlantic. So it's just southwest of Ireland. And how big, large is this canyon? It's pretty big. It starts at a depth of 200 metres and goes down to 4,000 metres. These samples were actually collected from 3,500 metres. The canyon's about two kilometres long. It's so funny that from such a huge structure you should be interested in such tiny worms. Yeah, these tiny tiny little worms, yeah. Well, actually in the deep sea most of the organisms are tiny because of the amount of food. There's not much food down there. So organisms have adapted to that by becoming very small. So let's have a look at these tiny little polychaete worms under the microscope. Under the microscope now, so I'll just get this in focus. They're almost like thin white worms but not so smooth all along in their body slightly disjointed almost or is that part of the process some sort of segments well actually polychaetes are related to earthworms that you find in your garden earthworms have little hairs on them for movement as well and so do these polychaete worms and yeah they are quite small sort of longish they're all sort of this color but they weren't this color to begin with they were actually more vibrant colors it's just the preserving process which makes them all this sort of has sort of bleached them out a bit yeah so why are you interested in these particular worms well polychaetes actually very abundant in the deep sea i'm looking at actually species diversity in the deep sea so i want to understand why there's lots of species in a certain place i'm working on submarine canyons underwater canyons and underwater canyons are thought to be hot spots for species diversity and for me to sort of properly understand this i'm looking at the polychaete worms in particular to find if there are lots of polychaete worms found in these underwater canyons 
And at the moment, yes, I found there are lots of polychaete worms in underwater canyons. And are there are lots of different species of, of these worms in particular? Is much known about them? I think it's 12,000 species of polychaete worm My goodness. identified. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a few identified so far. So the ones that I'm looking at, they're probably, and to be honest, they're probably all unknown species, a lot of them which makes it quite hard for me when I want to understand species diversity if I'm finding lots of species that are unknown. And species. when, to my eye, they all looked very similar yeah. under the microscope, particularly yeah, when yeah, they, they they've lost know. their, their yeah, colour. Yeah. How do you tell a, the different species apart? With polychaetes, they obviously have the keti, so the keti are the little hairs going all along down the side of the worm, and also the prostomium, which is like the head end, so you can see the different shapes of that. Now, one of the ways in which you must compare what you've got here yeah. with what you've got already in the Natural History Museum yeah. must be with the, the collections. Yeah, so the collections are like a really fantastic resource I have here. I'm very lucky. I think there's 8,000 polychaetes in the collections. Well, I think then we ought to go down yeah, to the uh, Yeah, let's go. Yeah. Feels as if we're going into an airlock. Yeah, it's very high security here. <laughs> Past two well. automatic doors. Yeah, two automatic doors. And as you notice in here, it's actually a bit cooler. Yes, yeah, gosh, yes, quite, quite considerably. Yeah. That's to um, help with the preservation of the specimens down here. Now, it's filled with what look like giant filing cabinets. Yeah, just and if I actually open this one here, which says um, Polychaeta, open it up here. And we have all the type specimens and the voucher specimens. Lots um, of different shaped jars glass jars here all sorts of sizes how many worms are in that because they are so much bigger than the ones that we've looked at whereas these are more maggoty size exactly yeah so there should just be one in here this is the type specimen it's actually from a challenger exhibition and, and so you would them. then take this one, say, up to your lab, yeah. look under it and compare with what you've actually got. Exactly, yeah, exactly that, to see if it was the same species. And what do you do when you have found a species that you can't find here in the Natural History yeah. Museum collection? Well, that's so in my deep sea biology ones, um, there are a lot of species that won't be here. So what you do is you describe it, so you have to um, write down all the features, morphological. And now, actually, there's more moving more to molecular, so you probably sequence it and then get the sequence information, the DNA from that, to like come up with a new species. That was Letitia Dunton from the Natural History Museum. You can find out more from Planet Earth online at our website, thenakedscientists.com slash planet earth. Now, we're used to popping down to the supermarket and choosing our groceries from the rows and rows of food available. But with the global population rapidly expanding, experts fear that in the future, our ability to supply food on this scale is not going to be able to meet our demands. To find out more and uh, how hungry we're going to have to be to fix this issue, we're joined by Professor Tim Benton. He's from the University of Leeds and he's a UK champion for food security. Hello, Tim. Hello, Chris. So, first of all, just define for us food security. What does that term actually mean? So the term means that everybody has access to food at all times and in all places sufficient to meet their needs for nutrition and health. There are seven billion of us on earth now we think or thereabouts. Are we currently feeding everybody? Because I keep seeing reports in the news and so on of people in famine states. Um, We are producing enough food around the world at the moment to feed everybody in terms of the amount of calories. Um, 
the issue, I think, is going to get more acute into the future because we have a projected growth in demand driven, as you say, by population growth, by the increasing global middle class and by increasing urbanisation, which changes our attitude to food. And we see it much more as a wasteable thing. So the projected growth in demand over the next 40 years is a 60% increase. And at the same time, we're going to have less land. We're going to have all sorts of constraints around the use of nitrogen fertiliser and pesticides and so on. We're going to have to be much more sustainable in our production because we're getting to the point where we just we can't carry on um, using the natural capital that we've been using in the soils and eroding the soils and so on. We're going to have less water. Um, at the moment, we use about 70% of the world's water um, on agriculture. And in the future, we can't expect to use that amount. Um, and then we've got climate change, and climate change is going to take out a whole chunk of our yields. So on the one hand, we've got a projected increase of demand of 60 or so percent. And then on the other hand, we've got a whole batch of constraints that are going to stop us doing it. And we're noticing now the imbalance between demand and supply, because in the last five years, we've had three big food price spikes. And the first one in 2007, 2008, um, it was contributory to the civil unrest in the Arab Spring. And, you know, we all have a kind of history that when food gets expensive, riots break out. And the French Revolution came from let them eat bread, let, let them eat cake from Marie Antoinette when bread prices went went through the roof. So we we are all, it's not, a, it's not just a matter of sub-Saharan Africa and starving children. In the UK at the moment, there are about 3 million people on the verge of malnutrition. Um, and the poorest in any society get hit hard. Given that rather sombre review that you've just offered, what can we do about it? Is it just a question of saying, right, population lies at the heart of this, we have to stop the population increase? Because if we did, that would stop 60% of the problem straight away, your figures. On the other hand, can we throw science at this? Presumably we can. And if so, what? What do we need to do? What can we do? So population growth is just one of the drivers of demand. And even if we stop population growth, the increase in wealth with the um, gl growing global economy means that the poor people uh, want to eat more meat, more expensive to produce food and so on. So even if we stopped people breeding, which is a horrendous thought to think about, but even if we did, there would still be an increase in demand. So part of the solution has got to be about managing our relationship with food, managing our demand, reducing waste. At the moment, in uh, North America and Europe, the, the amount of food that's thrown away is the equivalent of all of the production in sub-Saharan Africa. So we can do things around waste. We can clearly do things around production, um, given that we've got a finite amount of land use the land that is already converted into agriculture to grow food more efficiently. And then there are a whole host of things that we can do around that production from a science perspective, from an ecological science perspective to make it sustainable, from a human behaviour perspective, our attitudes to food, as well as the issues to do with population growth and economic growth. We're also joined by Jason Drew, an environmental entrepreneur from South Africa. In a minute, I'll be talking to him about his solution to reducing waste in the food chain. But first, Tim... Africa is the only continent with a greater ability to grow food than the demand from its population. Have you started to see this affecting the continent? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Africa's uh, working very, very hard to grow its agricultural production. I think the scary thing is, though, although it's got um, a certain amount of what is sometimes termed spare land, 
although from an ecological perspective that's arguable, uh, the issues of climate change and the, the future ability to produce the food that we think it might be able to might be impaired. But certainly in terms of the potential at the moment, given the current climate, um, there is uh, a you know, hu huge amount of growth that is possible and in parts of Africa that growth is starting to happen. Well, let's bring in Jason Drew at this point. Jason, what's your solution to the food problem in future? It's just taking one particular part of the food chain and beginning to close loops. So closing food cycles like we're doing in business to drive sustainability. And what we're doing uh, is really launching what we call the nutrient recycling industry. So we take it for granted today that we should recycle our tin, our plastic, our glass. And what we do is we recycle what are otherwise waste nutrients. So in particular, we take waste from slaughterhouses, uh, our industrial slaughterhouses, and indeed from other waste food sources, and reconvert those into usable proteins using, in particular, uh, two or three different species of fly. When you say waste that would be slaughterhouse waste, what would happen to the material that you're currently calling waste if you weren't to get your hands on it? Well, a lot of it goes into landfill. Uh, a lot of the blood, I mean, if you slaughter a million chickens, which isn't a lot every month, that's a quarter of a million litres of blood that would otherwise get poured into effectively just dams, lakes of blood. The problem is the haemoglobin then settles out and begins to affect the water table over a period of time. And, of course, um, using the fly to recycle those waste nutrients, we create an entirely natural uh, animal protein. And, you know, that's why flies... Um, have for years been eaten for millions of years by, by fish and by chickens. You know, a trout leaping out of a stream is, is after a fly. Uh, a tilapia in the bottom of a pond is looking for fly larvae or mosquito larvae. And so it's a natural food. Larvae is a natural food for chickens and fish. And instead of using the roughly third of our fish that we take from our seas in our industrial agricultural processes, we can just recycle those waste nutrients and convert them back into a good natural animal protein to put back into our uh, our farming operations. So how exactly does this work? Can you talk me through the operation? In, in its very simplest form, we have a very large cage full of flies. We've taught the eggs to, uh, taught the flies to lay their eggs all in one place. We take those eggs out of those cages and we keep a proportion of those eggs back to put into our breeding stock. And our breeding stock is fed on, on human-grade food, on milk, uh, milk powder, uh, sugar and, and yeast and a few other goodies. Um, we then feed the eggs on... Uh, the waste from the slaughterhouses and the abattoirs. And one kilo of eggs will turn into about 380 kilos of larvae uh, or protein if you take away the constraints in nature that would stop that happening. So on a decaying carcass in, in the bush, uh, different types of flies would land on it, different stages of decomposition, and they'd be eaten by passing birds, or indeed they'd fly off and be eaten by a, uh, a, a fish from a stream. So what we're doing is recopying re that natural process and closing the loop. And so, um, How much energy do you think that you can extract back out that would otherwise go to waste? Can we put some numbers on this, Jason? What sort of difference can your approach make using this, I think, very interesting technique? Our food conversion ratios depend on the, on the waste source, which is about two and a half to one. So if we take two and a half tonnes of waste, we end up with about a tonne of larvae, which on chemical analysis is, from an amino acid composition perspective, is identical to that of fish meal, plus or minus a few percent. So it has all the growth uh, factors that you need to make your chickens grow, to make your trout grow, to make your salmon grow. So we take two and a half tonnes of waste and make about a tonne of larvae or protein. And the reason this has become available as a business opportunity is that the price of fish meal has risen substantially over the last five to eight years. 
from a sort of stable price range of around $600 to about $2,000 today per tonne. So every tonne of fish meal uh, that we don't have to take from the seas because we replace it with mag meal is, is a good thing we're doing. And our large-scale factory coming online here in Stellenbosch later this year is targeted to make 100 tonnes of wet larvae a day, which is about 28.5 tonnes of dry larvae a day. So what are the fish currently being fed on? You mentioned fish meal. What is this that you feed them at the moment? Fish meal is, is really predominantly pelagic fish that are fished specifically to create an animal protein that can then go to the feeding of monogastric animals. So our fish, our chickens, our pets, uh, and other single-stomached uh, entities who need or have always traditionally uh, naturally had animal protein as part of their diet. So what we're doing is just replacing the unnatural protein, which is fish meal, with a natural protein. You know, we, uh, we sort of gave up fishing uh, in about 1950 and started catching because with sonar we just went to catch the fish that were in the seas. And we've been exploiting that natural resource to the point of uh, breaking, and we're all well aware of the, the issues facing uh, our seas around the world. And Can I know, just bring can... in Tim at this point? Because I think, t- Tim, how does this sort of factor with where you're coming from in terms of um, growing enough food to supply people? This must be music to your ears. Absolutely. Um, uh, I've been talking to somebody recently about the same sort of idea because uh, what we're doing is recycling something into something that's very usable and the issue around fish meal and collecting fish from the seas in an unsustainable way and turning that into a food for other fish to eat becomes kind of crazy and a real uh, uh, stopping point in the the chain of production of fish. So if we can do things like this, it allows us to carry on um, growing fish protein and that takes some of the pressure off converting land to producing uh, uh, animal protein or plant protein on land. So we're also joined tonight by Steve Sugden from Water for People, who's working on a similar idea to Jason's, but using a slightly smellier option. So Steve, um, you normally work on sanitation issues. How did you start thinking about the food chain? If you take a city like Dar es Salaam with a population of 3 million, you've got 75% of that population that actually pit latrine uses. Uh, when the pit latrine is, is full, it causes a problem to the householder, who then normally has to employ a manual pit emptier to empty the pit waste, and that gets put onto the nearest piece of land or drain. Um, this causes huge public health problems. Uh, places like Vingunguti, the last time I was there in, in an area of Dar es Salaam, the, the health officials thought they had endemic cholera. So the whole idea is, can we change our attitudes from seeing this as human waste, can we actually see it as an asset? And quick calculations will, will, will say that around um, uh, 560 tonnes of human waste are produced every day in Dar es Salaam. And can we actually use that as a, as a source of organic matter, as a source of energy to, to I- increase food production? Talk us through actually what's involved then, Steve. What do you do to rescue back that waste in the same way that Jason's doing it with blood? You're using something a bit less uh, pleasant, perhaps. But what is involved in your technique? There's two possible ways. One, which is you can actually do it at the household, which is more difficult. Um, the, for for the, the fact that you've got to keep inoculating the, the pit latrine with more fly larva. Uh, so the preferred method that we're looking at is actually developing pit emptying services, taking it to a nearby transfer uh, station, and then using black soldier fly 
which is, um, I, I think, really an extension of what Jason w was talking about, um, and using black soldier fly to actually eat the waste. Um, the black soldier fly, uh, from the early work that's been, been done, has a 42% a uh, fat content and a 30% uh, protein content. And as I say, it can be used for fish meal or even for making um, the fat content for making biodiesel. So, Jason, this is sort of complementary to what you're doing. Can you team up with Steve and uh, the two of you come up with a solution that means you can make the best of both worlds, both stuff that goes down the loo and stuff that goes into the landfill? They're all waste nutrients, and what we need to do is get busy using these waste nutrients, reconverting them to something useful, and get busy repairing the future. Final word from, from Tim. Where, where do you see this going? Um, I think we need to get a lot smarter about reusing this stuff like these guys have been saying. And uh, I, I went to a farm in China a couple of years ago where they had pigs and pigs producing muck and the muck was then used to farm earthworms and the earthworms went into fish food and the remainder of the muck went onto the field and it became a very closed system and incredibly efficient in terms of yield production, which is quite unlike most of our industrialised agriculture. Tim, thank you very much. Tim Benson from the University of Leeds, also Jason Drew and Steve Sugden before him. Jenny. So far in the show, we've been discussing how to maintain our meat supplies, but scientists are also busy researching how to improve crop yields. An international team is currently working to secure the future of the staple food for 60% of the globe, rice. Naked scientist Kate Lamble spoke to one of the members of the team, Helen Woodfield, who's completing her PhD at the University of Cambridge. So I work on uh, the C4 Rice Project, which is a large international corporation of people who are essentially working trying to increase the yield of rice, so more rice grains per plant. So why is it so important for us to increase the yield of rice? As I'm sure most people know, the population of the world is increasing at a much greater rate that we can keep up with in terms of food production. In 50 years' time, if population increases carry on in the projected way, then we're not going to cope, so we need to you know, have more food. So how are you going about trying to increase the yield of rice? There are different forms of photosynthesis. Most people will have studied photosynthesis at school, and it's a process where sunlight is converted from CO2 into sugars. Now, this process is inherently inefficient, and there are various plants which have evolved mechanisms which will overcome this flaw. So yeah, the whole point of this project is to try and put this specialised pathway called C4 into rice, which is a C3 plant. At school, I got taught about photosynthesis. There weren't different types of photosynthesis. How does this C4 type of photosynthesis differ from the C3 photosynthesis? So in C3 photosynthesis, you have an enzyme called Rubisco. And an enzyme is a protein which catalyzes a reaction. It turns one thing into something else. Now, the way that Rubisco works is it takes CO2 and it turns it into something else, which will then go on and be processed into sugars. So that's what happens in nearly every plant that you look at. Now, the problem is, is that CO2 is a very similar structure to oxygen. If you look at the two molecules, they're very, very similar. So Rubisco sometimes can't tell the difference, and it uses oxygen instead. So Rubisco is like a, an old, blind cook. It can't tell the difference between salt and sugar. Sometimes you use a salt, sometimes you use a sugar, and obviously the cake's going to be very different. The sugar ones are great, that's the CO2. The salt one's really bad. <laughs> so... What C4 does is it employs a helper. And this helper is a different enzyme. It lives in a different room, and he can tell the difference. It only takes the sugar off the shelf. So it only takes carbon dioxide, leaves the oxygen, then he passes the sugar to the cook in the other room, 
where he's just happily away making cakes. And because he hasn't got the option anymore, he only uses the sugar. So you only get good cakes, and so you only get the beneficial reaction. What kind of plants have this more effective form? Things like maize and sugarcane, generally grasses. So if you watch a nature documentary which has a shot of Africa, all of the grasses that you see in that shot will be C4. But in terms of commercial applications, obviously maize is the highest one. So why don't we just get the world to eat more maize? So I hadn't really appreciated how important rice is. I went over to the Philippines as part of my project to work for a bit. And yes, everyone was very distressed that I wasn't eating my five rice a day. And I was like, I can't deal with this. There's so much rice, but it is a massive cultural thing. And although maize is coming more and more into the food chain, bettering the crop that's already grown is a much better option. How can you make rice change the way it photosynthesizes? The approach that we're taking is that we're actually copying the genes out of maize. So those genes, we're hoping that if we took the maize versions, the C4 ones, and we put them in rice, that they'll still act in a C4-like way. And what results have you seen with that? Have they started to take on some effects of the C4? The problem is, is that without the whole pathway, you're not going to ever achieve the end result. It's like putting in part of a painting, expecting you to recognise it. You have to have the entire pathway and the anatomy all together before I think we'll see any sort of improvements in photosynthesis. So at this stage, we really are just playing around with trying to get the individual components in the right places at the right time. And then once we've got that sorted, we'll kind of build it all up, stack it all together and then make one plant that's got all of it. (laughs) It's quite a complicated process to essentially change the way that rice is set up. It must be quite an effective change for it to warrant this much effort in a way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're predicting that if you put C4 into rice, then we'll have about a 50% increase in productivity. And the most compelling thing is that the C4 photosynthesis has arisen at least 60 times across evolution. The theory behind it is that if it's arisen so many times, then try and make rice to do it, maybe it's not going to be as hard as we initially thought. Why hasn't rice developed C4 photosynthesis itself? The thing about the C4 pathway is that it does cost energy. So you have to pay to pump the carbon around the plant in this specialised way. So that's why you don't see C4 in this country, for instance, because you have this trade-off between the energy cost for running C4 and the energy cost for the photorespiration that you have if you don't have C4. And those costs change according to what the temperature is. So in this country, there are four, maybe five species which are C4, but all the rest are C3 plants. And that's because of the energy trade-offs. Why rice hasn't, I don't know. Because obviously rice grows in the tropics, which is quite hot. If we're looking at this working better in higher temperatures, does that mean that looking at the future with sort of climate change on the horizon, that this might become applicable to more crops? Definitely. And the other great thing about C4 is because it's more efficient at extracting CO2 from the atmosphere, it means that it can keep its stomata closed more. So stomata are basically little holes in the leaf through which gas can flow. But the other problem is that water loss happens through those holes. So other than obviously reduced food quantities, we're really running out of water. And so to make plants which are better at growing in low water conditions, like C4 plants, is also a huge benefit. How far off are we from getting this C4 process into rice? The overall outlook for the project is about 45, 50 years away. Um, So it's definitely a long-term project. Lots of people think you're absolutely mad for trying this. It's so ambitious and we know so little about it, really. When you think about the fundamentals of C4 and what controls it, we we know so little still. But then if you don't try, you're never going to find out.
Helen Woodfield from the Department of Plant Sciences at the University of Cambridge. Now we've heard a lot about food and trying to supply enough food to keep weight on. What about weight loss? Hannah Critchlow is getting all wrapped up in that subject for our question of the week. This week we're gnawing into a rather heavyweight question. Hi, this is Magnus from Edinburgh. I've just heard of this thing, apparently some way that women are now using to lose a lot of weight and fat off themselves. And it seems to be very effective, and that kind of instantly worries me. They apparently kill fat cells through lysis, and that's apparently a good thing. It just sounds dangerous to me. Could you guys illuminate that area? Thank you very much. So, for the princely price of about 60 great British pounds, I can pop down to my local beauty clinic and get a body wrap treatment. They will slather my body with cream, wrap me tightly in shrink wrap, and leave me lying there, looking rather squished and peculiar, under a heated blanket for about 90 minutes, and it's claimed that when unwrapped, I'll have lost inches. Rather than testing the procedure out in the office, as my boss suggests, instead I turn to Dr Stephen O'Reilly, Director of the Metabolic Research Laboratories at Cambridge University. Magnus is spot on here in smelling a rat. Lipolysis, which is the breakdown of triglyceride in fat to its constituent free fatty acids and glycerol, is a highly controlled and sophisticated biochemical process, and no amount of wrapping or pummeling will induce this to occur in fat cells. Secondly, if it did work, it would actually be dangerous. The reason our bodies evolved fat cells was to make a relatively safe place to store excess energy and a place from which energy could be released during times when food is scarce. If we suddenly release a large amount of fat from our fat cells, it would have to go somewhere. We know this is very bad news because patients who, for genetic or other reasons, can't make adequate numbers of fat cells develop severe metabolic side effects, including diabetes, pancreatitis, cirrhosis of the liver, all as a result of this toxic fat going somewhere where it shouldn't be, i.e. out of fat cells and into other tissues. So not only is this idea nonsense, it's potentially dangerous nonsense. So, if there's no fat cell breakdown going on, what about this claim that you lose inches once unveiled? Professor Stephen Bloom from Imperial College London has this to say. Sweat a little with no food or drink and pee out from the pressure on the body fluids of the wrapping and you're certainly lighter on the scale. Unfortunately, all you've lost is water. And as soon as you get back home, feeling thirsty, have a glass of water or two... This comes flooding back and your weight will go back up again. Hmm, I might give body wraps a miss and opt for a bit of exercise and healthy eating instead. And with that in mind, let's jog along to bite into next week's question. Hi, my name's Quezzy and I'm from London. My question is, are we the only species which practices dental care? I don't imagine other species brush their teeth, though I'm bracing myself to be proven wrong. Yet in the many documentaries I watch, the animals, particularly felines and canines, seem to have perfectly clean gnashes. Are we humans missing a trick, or is it our complex diet that necessitates stripy toothpaste? Thanks very much. Love the show. So, how do cats and other non-humans retain their pearly premolars? You can post your thoughts on the Naked Scientist's Facebook page, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com, or... You can join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow, that is it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Nigel Woodcock, Geoffrey Bazarian, Tim Benton, Jason Drew and Steve Sugden. And thank you to Ginny Smith for joining me. Production this week was by Kate Lamble and Hannah Critchlow. And next time we'll be celebrating the anniversary of the very famous epidemiologist, 
John Snow. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.